Before we get into the word this morning, we do have some good news that we would like to share with you. On April the 9th, Corey and Tatum Burke had a baby girl named Tessa Hope Burke, who came into the world at seven pounds, nine ounces, and 20 inches long. Uh, so we rejoice with Corey and Tatum over this precious gift of new life that God has bless them with and pray that they will experience the richest blessings of Christ as they bring up their daughter in the teachings of Jesus Christ. For the sermon this morning, I want to speak to you from John chapter 21. We're going to look at verses 1 through 19. And if you want to give a title to the message this morning, it would be a beautiful rescue, a beautiful rescue. You know, it's, it's natural for us to experience a big buildup to the Easter celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that happens on Easter Sunday. And then after Easter to sort of move on after that. To some degree, that's unavoidable, uh, but as pastors, we this year did not want that to happen so quickly. And that's why we have stayed focused on the resurrected Christ in the videos that we have been putting out on YouTube over the length of this past week, and why I want us this morning in our time in the word to continue beholding the resurrected Christ in John chapter 21. If there is anything that we need during this time of coronavirus, it's Christ. Uh, we need to remind ourselves that COVID-19 is not king, Christ is king. And every word that falls from his lips should be the headlines that grip our hearts and shape our lives and define what our attentions should be on and even define what should be normal for us. As we slowly wind our way through this crisis with the coronavirus, the talk is ever increasing about when we might be able to return to normal. But as one writer I was reading this past week says, uh, we should stop and ask whenever we say that, what parts of normal are worth getting back to? Certainly there are many things about our old normal that are worth getting back to, but I think that God may be using this season of crisis to get all of us to rethink what normal should be because maybe there are some parts of what was once normal that Christ is seeking to save us from through all that has transpired in recent weeks. This season of self-isolation and social distancing, uh, I think provides us a good opportunity for us to rethink and to establish a new normal. And whatever that new normal is, uh, I know that it should have the resurrected Christ at the center and should be shaped by his amazing love for us. And I think that John chapter 21 can help us immensely with that. And that's why we're going to look at this passage this morning. In our passage today, we see the apostle Peter actually making an attempt to return to his old normal in the days following the first Easter, but Christ won't let him. Uh, we will witness in our passage today, Christ invading that old normal and calling Peter away from it into a new normal with the resurrected Christ at its center. According to John's gospel, Jesus made an appearance to all the disciples together on the day of the resurrection. And then at a later point, he appeared to all of them again when Thomas was present. 
And those appearances happened in or near Jerusalem. In John chapter 21, the passage we're going to look at today, the Apostle John records for us what amounts to another major post-resurrection appearance of Jesus that happened probably a week or so after that first Easter, an appearance in which Jesus manifest himself to seven of his disciples, primary among whom was Peter, who were together on a boat in the Sea of Galilee. When you read the other gospel accounts, you read that Jesus had instructed his disciples to leave Jerusalem and to go up to Galilee and to wait for him there. And he promised them that they would see him when they arrived in Galilee and it's clear, even in our passage today, that the disciples did go up to Galilee. Yet you get the impression that Jesus did not appear to them immediately in the timely manner that they expected once they arrived in Galilee. And it's perhaps in this period of disappointed expectation that the events of John chapter 21 take place. As we look at this passage this morning, I want us to um, observe six developments in the story of the resurrected Christ rescuing Peter from his old normal. And the first of these developments is, number one, Peter returns to his fishing and catches nothing. Peter returns to his fishing and catches nothing. Observe how the Apostle John begins this account in verse 1. The text says, After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and that would be the Sea of Galilee, and he manifested himself to them in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas, called Didymus, and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, who would have been James and John, and two others of his disciples were together. So all in all, this story is going to involve seven disciples of Jesus, the primary one among whom is Peter, whose name is mentioned first in this list. Now observe what Peter does in verse 3. The text says, Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, We will also come with you. It is possible that Peter is simply deciding to go fishing in order to provide food for himself and for his family and for his companions. If that is the case, then what Peter is doing here is perfectly fine. But some commentators suggest that there is more going on here than that. John MacArthur suggests that what we see here is Peter rashly returning to his former livelihood of commercial fishing instead of waiting to meet the Lord. And that is possibly what's happening here. Perhaps so much time has elapsed since Jesus' last appearance that Peter has grown impatient and is now wanting to return to his former occupation. Perhaps Peter is still feeling the sting from his threefold denial of Jesus and is feeling like he should just go back to being a fisherman rather than trying to be some leader in Christ's church. Perhaps Peter's doubts are getting the best of him, and he's feeling that the resurrected Christ would not have any use for him any longer because of his denials of Christ. Beyond that, perhaps Peter is just feeling the call of the sea and feeling a longing to go back to his old occupation because it's familiar and it's something that he feels competent at. Perhaps he's worried about his family's financial well-being and he needs to return to his old occupation in order to generate some income to meet his family's needs. 
whatever the reasons, Peter decides to go back to his fishing here in our passage today, and he announces his intentions to his companions, and they're influenced by him, and they say, we will also come with you. Without even trying, Peter is being a leader here, and the other six of his friends decide to go with him back to his fishing. It's precisely because Peter is such a leader that Jesus must rescue him here, not simply for Peter's own sake, but also for the sake of all those that Peter will be influencing in the days ahead. Observe what happens at the end of verse 3. The text says, They went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Well, that went well. It sounded like a great idea at first, but Peter and his companions experienced nothing but futility on this fishing expedition. Cast after cast, the fishing net goes into the water and it comes up empty through the full length of the night all the way until the sun comes up the next morning and all of it to no avail. By the time the sun is rising the next morning, Peter is probably pretty frustrated and he's probably thinking, I can't win for losing. I'm a terrible disciple of Christ and I can't even fish anymore either. But things are about to take a dramatic turn for the better as the sun comes up. This leads us to the second development in this story of the resurrected Christ rescuing Peter from his old normal. Number two, Jesus shows up and helps Peter catch a huge amount of fish. Jesus shows up and helps Peter catch a huge amount of fish. Observe what happens in verses four and five. The text says, but when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, Children, you do not have any fish, do you? They answered him, No. We learn in a few verses that the boat was about a hundred yards away from the shore at this point. So the disciples were close enough to Jesus to hear his voice and yet far enough away from Jesus to not be able to recognize him in the morning light. Notice, though, how Jesus calls his disciples children. I'm sure they were not used to being referred to as children. This was no doubt an expression of tenderness and endearment, uh, but it also may capture something about their impetuous behavior in returning to their fishing rather than waiting for Jesus. As for Jesus' question, notice that Jesus doesn't say, have you caught any fish? No, he says, you do not have any fish, do you? The disciples give to Jesus a truthful answer. They say, no, we haven't caught anything. As far as they know, a stranger is asking and they answer and say, no, we haven't caught any fish. And it is then that Jesus gives to his disciples some fishing advice. Observe what he does in verse 6. The text says, And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find a catch. This is actually more than simply advice that Jesus is giving to his disciples, this is a command accompanied by a promise. Cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, Jesus commands, and then he says, you will find a catch. That's the promise. I don't know how we would have responded to this kind of uninvited fishing advice from a stranger, but the disciples respond in a humble way and they take this stranger's advice 
Observe what happens in verse 6. The text says, so they cast, in other words, they cast their net on the right side of the boat, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. So many fish instantly are now caught in this net that Peter and his companions can't even bring the net into the boat because of the great number of fish. Well, the disciples, no doubt, are blown away and they find themselves experiencing deja vu. Something like this has happened to them before a couple years prior, and that's recorded for us in Luke chapter 5, I believe, in verses 1 through 11. And the man standing on the shore giving them advice in that earlier instance was Jesus. And in that earlier instance, after a night of catching nothing, they followed Jesus' advice and they caught so many fish that their nets began to break and their boat started to sink. And now here in John chapter 21, they follow a stranger's advice and they're suddenly catching a huge amount of fish. Well, they put two and two together very quickly and realize who this stranger is who is standing on the shore giving them this advice. This brings us to the third development in this story of the resurrected Christ rescuing Peter from his old normal. Number three, recognizing Jesus, Peter and the disciples come to him. Recognizing Jesus, Peter and the disciples come to him. Observe what happens in verse 7. The text says, Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, said to Peter, It is the Lord. John here clearly does not recognize Jesus by appearance. He recognizes Jesus by the look of the miracle. John knows Jesus well enough to know that what just happened is a Jesus thing. Only Jesus could have made this happen. So John looks at Peter and says, it's the Lord. And as soon as Peter realizes that it is Jesus on the shore, observe what he does in verse 7. The text says, so when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. Peter had been stripped down to a bare minimum of clothing for fishing, but when he realizes that it's Jesus on the shore, he puts on his outer garment and throws himself into the sea to swim to Jesus. As for the other disciples, they could not have been very happy with what Peter is doing here because Peter is leaving them to handle the full net of fish that they now can't get into the boat. As for Peter, Peter had thought hours earlier that he wanted to go back to being a fisherman, but now he knows, now that he knows that Jesus is standing on the shore, Peter suddenly doesn't care about fishing and he suddenly doesn't care about all the fish that they just caught. He cares only about getting to Jesus as quickly as possible and leaving the huge catch of fish behind. Peter is far from a perfect man, but we see something here about where Peter's affections lie. Sometimes God provides us with blessings and we wrongly value the blessings over the one who gave us the blessings. But Peter doesn't do that here. Jesus blesses him with a huge catch of fish. That's the dream of a professional fisherman like Peter. And what does Peter do? He runs away from that huge catch and makes a beeline to Christ who provided that huge catch of fish. 
And that's the way we should be as well in response to the blessings that Christ gives to us, valuing him more than the blessings that he gives. As for the other disciples, observe what they do in verse 8. The text says, But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. Without Peter's help, these men could not even get the net into the boat because it was so heavy. So they decide to just hold on to the net that's full of fish and to drag it through the water as they paddled their little boat toward the shore. When they get to the land, observe the sight that they are greeted with in verse 9. The text says, So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Guys, this is the sovereign resurrected Lord who has all authority in heaven and on earth. And what is he doing? He's cooking breakfast for these disciples and he's asking them now to bring some of the fish that they have just caught. It finally registers in this moment to Peter that the other men may need his help. So observe what he does in verse 11. The text says, Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, a hundred and fifty-three and although there were so many, the net was not torn. It's here we learn a couple things about the fish. We learn that these fish were large, and we learn that there were 153 of them. Fishermen love to share the details about their amazing catches of fish and I don't think any of us have a fish story that can match the one that John is telling us here. And he's careful to tell us the number of fish that they caught, 153 large fish in one cast. Now, why does Jesus provide them such a large catch of fish? Well, because he's an extravagant savior who wants to assure his disciples of his love for them and of his power to provide abundantly for them. That's the kind of savior that he is. I also think Jesus is showing them that he will soon be making them fishers of men who will be bringing many souls into the kingdom, into Christ's church, which may also be why we are told that the net was not torn from this huge catch of fish, unlike what happened back in Luke chapter 5, when something similar happened. In Luke 5, they caught so many fish that the nets were breaking, but here the nets don't break. Why? As one writer says, perhaps the unbroken nets point to the fact that the church's resources with Christ in its midst are never overstrained. Christ is going to provide them an abundant catch of souls in the months and years to come, and he will provide for them all that they need to be able to handle that huge catch of souls. Either way, Peter and his companions aren't thinking about any of the symbolism represented in what Christ has done right now. They're just blown away by this huge catch of fish and by the appearance of Jesus on the shore. What happens next? Well, this brings us to the fourth development in this story of the resurrected Christ rescuing Peter from his old normal. Number four, Jesus feeds his disciples breakfast. Jesus feeds Peter and his disciples breakfast. 
Observe what Jesus says in verse 12. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Come and have breakfast. The condescension of Jesus is marvelous to behold here. I mean, among the post-resurrection utterances of the resurrected Lord recorded in Scripture is, come and have breakfast. That's amazing to me. Observe how the disciples respond in verse 12. None of the disciples ventured or literally had courage to question him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. The language that is used here shows a conflict of thought and emotion in the disciples in this moment. They did not ask Jesus who he was because they lacked the courage to ask him. And they also didn't ask him because deep down they knew that it was him. What's obvious is that the last thing that these disciples expected to encounter was Jesus on this particular morning. In this setting, with him cooking breakfast over a fire and inviting them to have breakfast? I mean, had Jesus appeared to them on this morning in the clouds in a brilliant display of glory, they probably would have had no trouble believing that it was Jesus. But standing on the shore and cooking breakfast for them? The whole thing was just too mundane. Yet their eyes were telling them that this is Jesus who is cooking this breakfast for us and who's inviting us to have breakfast. Evidently, though, they take Jesus up on his offer. They sit down and Jesus serves them breakfast. Look at verse 13. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. Apparently, these disciples are careful not to get too close to Jesus. So the text says that Jesus came to them and gave them the bread and the fish. And these men will spend the rest of their lives telling people about the time that they were served breakfast by the resurrected Lord. In verse 14, John says, this is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is actually the third time that we see the word manifested in this story. And we're learning a lot about Jesus through how he chooses to manifest himself to his disciples here. And I'm sure that Jesus doesn't just engage with them in this way for their sake, but also for his own sake. Jesus cherishes this opportunity to meet these disciples in their frustration, in their futility, and to provide them a huge catch of fish, and then to meet them in their hunger and to serve them breakfast. I can imagine the exchange that Jesus would have had with his father in the moments before he makes this appearance, saying, Father, I would like to appear to my disciples. They have been fishing all night and they have caught nothing. And then the father replies and says, how would you like to appear to them? And then Jesus says, I'd like to help them catch some fish and I'd like to prepare breakfast for them, and I'd like to serve them breakfast. And the father says, that would be just like you, son. And he lets Jesus manifest himself to his disciples in this way. What this post-resurrection appearance of Jesus shows us is that the resurrected Jesus is the same Jesus as the pre-resurrected Jesus. The pre-resurrected Jesus gird himself with a towel and washed his disciples' feet. And this post-resurrected Jesus 
cooks and serves his disciples breakfast. I imagine all of heaven's angels bending low in this moment as they stooped over the uh, portals of heaven to watch this scene as it unfolded. How the angels must have adored the Lord Jesus in this moment. Even in his exaltation, Jesus is capable of such tender condescension. And rather than rebuking his disciples for returning to fishing, Jesus blesses them with a huge catch of fish and provides a meal for them. It's evident from what follows that Jesus wants to do a very sweet work in their hearts, and namely in Peter's heart, but he prefers to do that work in the context of these kindnesses that he is now lavishing on them. What is not to love about a savior like this? After they finish this meal, Jesus gets into an intensely personal exchange with Peter in particular. And this brings us to the fifth development in this story of the resurrected Jesus rescuing Peter from his old normal Number five, Jesus gives Peter a chance to affirm his love for him, and he recommissions him. Jesus gives Peter a chance to affirm his love for him, and he, Jesus, recommissions him. Observe how Jesus engages Peter in verse 15. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my lambs. It is touching to me that Jesus waits until they had eaten breakfast before he poses this question to Peter. Peter has worked all night, catching nothing, leaving him tired, probably cranky and hungry. Jesus feeds him and fellowships with him over breakfast. And then in that relaxed setting, he asks Peter a deeply personal question. My oldest son, Brendan, is now 28 years old. And when he was younger, I would sometimes ask him a personal question, and he would often respond by saying, oh, Dad, if you want an answer to that question, you need to take me to Rubio's restaurant. So that's what I would do. I knew that if I wanted to get really personal with my son, I had to do that over a meal. So I would do that, and in the process, my son learned how to get a free meal from his dad. But the truth is that there is something about enjoying a meal together that is disarming. It serves to set the tone for personal conversation, and I'm blessed that Jesus would even think to do this with Peter here. Jesus could have walked on the water to Peter after a fruitless night of fishing and say, Peter, do you love me? But he doesn't do that. He invites Peter to breakfast. And then when Peter's stomach was full and satisfied, Jesus then poses his personal question to Peter. Jesus looks at Peter in this moment and he says, do you love me more than these? It's hard to know with certainty Jesus' exact meaning here. I personally think that Jesus is pointing to the fish and the boat and the net and saying, do you love me more than these things? In other words, do you love me, Peter, more than your fishing career? It's possible that Jesus is pointing to his fellow disciples and saying to Peter, do you love me more than these men love me? And if this is what Jesus is asking Peter, then 
His question would hearken Peter's memory back to the night when Peter pointed to his fellow disciples and said to Jesus, even though all may fall away from you, I will never fall away. In other words, Peter is professing in this moment to love Jesus more than the other disciples did. And then what happens? Peter turns around and falls the hardest of them all. It's possible that Jesus is asking Peter if Peter loves him more than the other disciples do. But it doesn't, to me, seem like Jesus to ask the question with this meaning and to try to shame Peter in this moment in front of the other disciples like this. I think it's most likely that Jesus is asking Peter if he loves him more than his fishing, more than his fishing career. And what makes me go this way is Peter's answer. In verse 15, Peter says, yes, Lord. And I highly doubt that Peter would have said yes to this question if he understood Jesus to be asking if he loved Jesus more than the other disciples did. Peter's full reply to Jesus' question is, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Now, commentators point out that there are two different words for love that are used in this exchange between Peter and Jesus. Jesus says to Peter, do you agapeo me? And that's the Greek word agape. And Peter replies by saying, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you, using a different Greek word for love. However you wish to understand the two words for love that are used here, you need to make sure that you look at the text very carefully and give Peter full credit for his answer. Jesus asked Peter, do you agapeo me? And what does Peter say? He says yes to that question. In other words, Peter is saying, yes, Jesus, I agapeo you. And then in addition to that, Peter says, you know that I phileo you. In his word studies, a scholar named R.C. Trench suggests that what is happening here is that Peter is actually not content with the word agape to capture the fullness of his feeling for Jesus and that maybe that word agape feels a little too cold for Peter. And so Peter confesses that and says yes to Jesus' question if he agapeos him. But then Peter piles on the word phileo to express the warmth of his affection toward Jesus. So rather than viewing Peter here as only being willing to confess to some lower form of love for Jesus, we should probably see Peter as seeking to intensify his profession of love. We should understand Peter as saying to Jesus, yes, Jesus, I agapeo you. You know that I adore you with the deepest affection. A fair read of Peter's confession here would understand him to be professing to both agapeo love and phileo love for Jesus. Both of these words are powerful words for love throughout the New Testament, and Peter is confessing to both here in order to express the fullness of his love for Jesus. And evidently, Jesus appreciates what he hears and receives what Peter has just said to him. He receives Peter's profession of love. And then he says to Peter, tend my lambs. In other words, he's saying, Peter, if you really do love me, then you will show your love for me by tending to or by feeding my lambs, my littlest sheep. Jesus' sheep are those for whom he died. 
those who know his voice and who follow him. His lambs are the littlest and the youngest and the most immature in the church who believe in him and belong to him and who need the most care. Jesus loves his sheep, as we see here, even down to the littlest of the sheep, to the littlest of children, to the youngest of believers in him. And he's calling Peter to show his love for him by taking care of them. Perhaps the conversation went on from there to other topics, but during a later lull in the conversation, Jesus looks at Peter once again. And in verse 16, he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he, Peter, said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he, Jesus, said to him, shepherd my sheep. Again, Jesus says to him, do you agapeo me? And Peter says yes to that question. Yes, Lord, he says to that question. And then once again, he piles on to that and says, you know that I phileo you. Well, Jesus seems satisfied with Peter's profession and then says to Peter, shepherd my sheep. In other words, he's saying, if you really love me, Peter, then you can show your love for me by shepherding my sheep, guide my sheep, protect my sheep, feed my sheep, and discipline my sheep. Do everything for my sheep that a shepherd does for his sheep, and thereby show your love for me that you have just professed to. In all likelihood, the conversation continues on from there to maybe other topics, but eventually during another lull in the conversation, Jesus looks at Peter and verse 17, he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? Now, this time, if you're looking at the Greek text, you'll notice that Jesus switches in his question from using agapeo to the word phileo. And he says to Peter, do you phileo me? Does this mean Jesus is asking Peter a different question now? Not really. Peter doesn't view this as a different question at all. The text itself tells us that Peter was grieved because Jesus is now saying the third time, do you phileo me? Peter is understanding Jesus to be essentially asking the same question now for a third time, and he's feeling grieved, not that Jesus would change words for love here, but that Jesus would ask him for a third time now if he loves him. Peter is grieved that his previous two confessions were not sufficient for Jesus leading Jesus to ask now a third time if Peter loved him. And observe Peter's answer. He said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. I am struck that Peter doesn't say, Lord, maybe I don't love you. I mean, I would personally start feeling insecure if Jesus asked me three times like this. But Peter is not going to back down from his profession. He knows that he loves Jesus, even though his actions of denying Christ a few weeks earlier failed to show that. Peter here is saying, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you more than my actions from a couple weeks ago may have shown it seems that Jesus receives Peter's answer and says, tend my sheep. In other words, if you really love me, Peter, then you will show your love for me by feeding and taking care of my sheep. As for the work that 
Christ is doing here in Peter's heart, I want you to notice some contrast here. Two or three weeks prior to this very moment, Peter denied Jesus three times, yet here Jesus gives him opportunity to express his love three times. This had to have been an incredibly healing moment for Jesus and how gracious of Jesus to provide this moment. After Peter had denied Christ three times and then heard thereafter about Christ's death, I am sure that Peter would have sold everything that he had to be able to talk to Jesus and tell him how much he really loved him. And Jesus here is giving Peter a chance to do that. And it had to have been wonderfully encouraging for Peter to see Jesus hearing his profession of love and then seeming to receive it and then recommissioning Peter to be a leader in Christ's church. Also, we should note that in denying Christ a few weeks earlier, Peter, in his denials, put the focus on what he did not know. In his first denial, he had said, I do not know what you are talking about. That's Matthew 26, 70. In his second denial, he said, I do not know the man. That's in Matthew 26, 72. And in his third denial, he said, I do not know the man. Matthew 26, 74. So three times, I do not know, I do not know, I do not know. Yet here in John 21, Peter's focus is on what Jesus knows. You know that I love you, he says in verse 15. You know that I love you, he says in verse 16. You know all things, he says in verse 17. And you know that I love you, he says in verse 17. Four times here in John 21, Peter is saying to Jesus, you know. On the night of Jesus' arrest, Peter three times denied knowing Jesus. But here, in this moment, Peter seems happy enough to simply be known by Jesus. He's thrilled and content that Jesus knows him. Let's also note the fact that it was while warming himself by a fire that Peter uttered his first denial of Christ. And here Christ builds Peter another fire beside which he can now profess his love for him three times. Jesus thinks of everything and what is not to love about a savior like this. This leads us to the final development in this account of the resurrected Christ rescuing Peter from his old normal. Number six, Jesus assures Peter that he will indeed die for him one day. Jesus assures Peter that he will indeed die for him one day. Listen to what Jesus says here in verse 18 to Peter. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. The stretching out of Peter's hands that Jesus is talking about here is probably a reference to Peter's hands being stretched out for crucifixion and then being girded with the horizontal beam of a cross, which Peter would then carry to his own crucifixion. John himself tells us how to interpret what Jesus is talking about here. In verse 19, John says, Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to Peter, follow me. When Jesus had told Peter a few weeks prior that 
he would deny him three times before the rooster crowed. Peter, you will recall, protested and said to Jesus, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And what did Peter do? He turns right around and denied Christ, which I am sure left Peter feeling foolish about the boast that he had made. But Jesus here is doing something truly wonderful. He's saying to Peter, hey, Peter, do you remember that statement you made about being willing to die for me? I don't want you to be embarrassed about that. There was truth in that statement. Sure, you didn't live up to that statement in the short term, but there was integrity. There was something good and true in that statement. And one day you will actually carry out the truth of what you said you would do. And that's what actually happened. Church tradition from as early as AD 96 tells us that Peter was martyred for Christ. And later tradition also has it that he was crucified. And here in John 21, Jesus is foretelling Peter's martyrdom in this very passage. And he's thereby telling Peter that his declaration of willingness to die with Jesus is going to actually come to fruition one day. Which leaves us with a wonderful thought to consider this morning. Think about how many times you profess your love for Jesus only to fail to live up to the love that you profess. For example, you may profess this morning that you love Jesus, and then later today, you may stumble and fail to show that love as you ought. And Jesus doesn't look at that failure later today and come to you and say, you must not love me at all. Your profession of love for me this morning was a joke, given the way you're acting now. No, he comes to you in your moment of failure and says, one day you're going to show your love for me in a way that is consistent with what you professed to me this morning. And I want you to know that I already see that. I don't view your profession of love for me this morning as foolish and meaningless just because you failed to live up to that profession today. I see your profession from this morning in the light of what I'm going to make of you over time. And one day you will live up to your profession of love for me. Again, what is not to love about a savior like this? What a heart achingly sweet and amazing, beautiful resurrected Lord we have. Only the hardest of hearts would refuse to love one so tender, so thoughtful, and so wonderful as he. Before we close, I want to make two points that I think we can draw from this passage today. The first is regarding the question that Jesus is asking Peter. The question that Jesus asked Peter in our text today is hugely significant, and it actually serves as the culmination of events that started a few weeks prior. And we need to see what's happening here in that larger context. A couple weeks prior to Christ being crucified, Jesus, you will recall, revealed himself on the Mount of Transfiguration to Peter, James, and John, showing his glory. And you know what? Peter loved what he saw, and he wanted to stay in that place forever. That was an image of Christ that Peter could fall in love with. He loved that Jesus. But shortly thereafter, Jesus began telling Peter and the other disciples that he's going to suffer many things and be killed, and on the third day, he's going to rise again. Well, Peter didn't love that version of Christ. He said to Jesus, Lord, may this never happen to you. And Peter didn't just say that because he loved Jesus and didn't want him to suffer. Peter was rebuking Jesus because 
Peter would rather love a conquering Christ than love a Christ who lets himself die and suffer. Peter preferred a Christ who never suffers and who never dies in the first place. He wanted a Messiah who didn't even need to rise again because he would never die. Peter took that rebuke from Jesus and no doubt thought about it. He followed Jesus all the way down to Jerusalem, hoping for the best, but his dreams were dashed. Jesus kept talking about dying the whole journey. And even after they got to Jerusalem, and by the time the week was over, after they arrived in Jerusalem, Jesus lets himself be arrested. And at the moment of his arrest, Peter pulls out his sword and he chops a guy's ear off, ready to die with Jesus, to die defending him. But Jesus rebuked Peter for trying to defend him. And Jesus even then graciously reattaches the ear of the man whom Peter had attacked in his attempt to defend and protect Jesus. Peter had to have been left devastated and confused by all of this. He had to have been intensely frustrated at Jesus for allowing himself to be arrested, for allowing himself to be falsely accused, allowing himself to be punched and slapped and condemned to crucifixion. Jesus, who has all power to do all the miracles he's done, and he's letting these things be done against him, in the midst of Peter's growing frustration, three times people come up to him and question him about his association with Jesus, and Peter denies even knowing Jesus at all. Now, I don't think Peter utters those denials simply because he was afraid to die for Jesus. He utters those denials because he was afraid to die for a man who lets himself be crucified. There's probably a degree to which Peter, in his moment of denials, is genuinely feeling that he doesn't know Jesus at all. This is not turning out how I expected. I thought I knew him. I don't know him at all. Peter didn't want a crucified Messiah, but that's what he was getting, and he didn't like it. And in his disappointment with Jesus, he found it easy to deny even knowing Jesus at all. But Jesus was crucified, and he was raised on the third day. And now this crucified and risen Messiah is talking to Peter on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he is saying to Peter, do you love me? Perhaps even showing him his scars in his hands and feet as he asked this question. As Leon Morris says, Peter's actions had shown that he did not want a crucified Lord, but Jesus was crucified. How did Peter's devotion stand in the light of this? Was he ready to love Jesus as he was and not as Peter wished him to be? That was an important question. Peter must face it and answer it. And to his... Eternal credit, Peter looks at this resurrected Lord with scars on his hands and feet and side and says, yes, Jesus, I love you. You know that I love you with deepest, warmest affection. And that's the question that all of us must face. The crucified Jesus, who died and who was raised again, comes to you and says, do you love me? Do you love me as the Savior who allowed myself to die upon a cross for your sins? Do you love me as the Savior who was raised again on the other side of dying on a cross? Do you love me? the crucified and risen Lord. And what will you say in reply to that question from Jesus to you? Will you say, yes, Lord, I love you? Or will you say, no, I don't?
take a moment in the quietness of your heart and answer that question honestly. If Jesus came to you in this very moment and said, do you love me? How would you answer him today in this very moment? Would you say, yes, I love you? Or no, I don't. Do you love the crucified and risen Lord Jesus of the Bible? Or do you not love him? I pray that your answer to that question would be yes. And if your answer is yes, then you actually learn something in this passage about how you can show your love for Jesus. After Peter professes his love for Jesus, all three times Peter or Jesus points Peter toward his sheep and tells Peter to take care of his sheep. All three times that Peter says he loves Jesus, Jesus tells him a practical way that he can express and show and manifest that love for Jesus. Jesus is teaching in this passage, Peter and all of us, that if we really love Jesus, we will show our love for him through what we do for his sheep, all the way down to the littlest lambs, as imperfect and broken and immature as they may presently be. Someone who loves Christ will love Christ's people. If you want to know where to find Christ's sheep, you find them in the church. And you preach the gospel to the lost and you can identify who is Christ's sheep by those who respond to the gospel and believe in Jesus and come to love him. You cannot love Christ and hate his people. If you truly love Christ and want to show him how much you love him, Christ says, go and do something good for one of my sheep. And I will personally feel the love as you express it to me through what you do for my sheep. Right now, we are all separated from one another in ways that we could have never anticipated even just as recently as two months ago. But we can love the members of our family who are right in front of us, and we can reach out to one another in this church in various ways and show our love for Christ through the ways that we check in on each other and serve each other during these days. And I've been so blessed as one of the pastors here to hear of how so many of you are doing that. This time of social distancing has not caused your love for each other to wax cold, but has caused you to show your love for Christ through the good that you are doing for his sheep as you love one another. And I'm so blessed as a pastor to see that evident love for Christ demonstrated through you. This should be the normal that we all strive for. I personally don't know. I don't have a clue when things are going to be back to normal for us as a church. But may our love for Christ and our loving service to each other forever be a part of our new normal in Christ. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for saving us from our sins. Even through the amazing ways that you go about relating to us, the way you related to Peter and his companions here is, is absolute genius, thoughtful, tender, probing and wonderful on every level. And when I read a story like this, I'm reminded that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same Jesus that we see on the shore of the Sea of Galilee dealing with Peter so wonderfully is the same Jesus 
that we relate to today, the heart that you exhibit toward Peter in this passage is the same heart that you have toward us who are your sheep. I'm amazed at the love that you display toward Peter in this passage, but I I also hear you while talking to Peter, bringing up your sheep three times, and that's us. Even 2,000 years ago in this moment, you were thinking ahead and thinking about us, and you wanted us as your sheep to be properly cared for and properly fed. So we thank you for the love that you showed in dying for us and the care that you demonstrate in a passage like this. It melts our hearts, Lord. It causes us to love you all the more. And it makes us want to be like you. And when I read a passage like this, Lord, I'm also mindful of all the brothers and sisters here at Cornerstone who I see this same grace displayed in the way that they show love to their brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would nurture the bond that unites us in you, even during this time of social distancing, and that you would accomplish great things in us and through us in the lives of other people. I'm mindful of what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, 9, that while he was bound in prison and isolated, he said, the word of God is not bound. And the same is true today. We may be isolated in our homes and limited, but your word is not limited. And it is running freely throughout the earth and accomplishing great things and it will not return to you void. And so we invite you, Lord Jesus, through your word to do great things in us and then help us to open our mouths and to speak your word to others and that you might use us as your instruments to achieve great things in the lives of others. We pray this for ourselves. We pray this for all other brothers and sisters here in Riverside and throughout our nation and in churches throughout the world. You would glorify your name through how you use us during these epic days in which we live. May we lift your name high and display your greatness through the love that we show to you, a love that we only have because you first have loved us so wonderfully. We ask all of these things, Lord, in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.